0: If you want to take your Bibles out with me uh, and open up to the book of Genesis, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off several weeks ago in the book of Genesis, chapter 38. And if you're looking at that black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 32 of that Bible. Encourage you to follow along, keep your Bible open uh, as we read God's word and consider what it's saying to us this morning. The catechism reminds us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Simply put, that's why God created us. It's why we exist. And as Christians, we believe very confidently that, that God will be glorified. Though we see his name dragged through the mud at times, we believe that the earth will be filled with a knowledge of his glory. But with that confidence, when we look in the mirror sometimes and we see our sin and we see our struggle to enjoy God and our struggle to live for God's glory, in those moments, well, God's unstoppable plan to bring glory to himself may feel threatening, because the reality is is that it can sometimes seem like an either-or situation. Either God cares for me, but compromises his plan for his glory, or God accomplishes his plan, but I, the sinner, may get run over in the process. I wonder if you ever feel like that. What do you do then? When it feels like it's an either-or situation. Well, we turn our attention this morning to Genesis 38. And fair warning, we've seen several of these texts in Genesis. Genesis 38 is a very disturbing text. It's filled with scandal, deceit, prostitution, a dysfunctional family, and it's filled with death. We're going to see two of the main characters, Judah and Tamar. We're going to see the ugliness of Judah's sin put on display in the pages of scripture, and we're gonna see how his sin left Tamar, his daughter-in-law, in in shambles. And sin does that, doesn't it? Sin always leaves a trail of destruction, both in the life of the sinner, and in the people, and the families, and in the communities that sin touches. And so when we see the the devastation of sin, it leaves us asking, even as we're gonna see in the text this morning, is there any hope in the aftermath of sin? Is there hope for the sinner? Is there hope for the person who's been sinned against, who's been wronged? Well, in Genesis 38, God, will see, is carrying out his unstoppable plan to bring him glory and and make Abraham's family into a great nation just as he promised. And if you or I were God, it would be an either or situation. Either the plan we're going to care for the we're either going to carry out this plan or we're going to care for the person. But here's the good news of Genesis 38. God is not limited like us. So praise God that you and I are not God. God is able to carry out his worldwide plans for his glory while simultaneously caring for individuals perfectly and intimately. Genesis 38 reveals that that God, who's able to do both at the same time, is our God. And it's in seeing this God in Genesis 38 that we find hope in the aftermath of sin. The big idea of Genesis 38, I'm gonna give it to you up front, the big idea of the text is this. Trust God in the sinful mess because God is faithful to complete his plan and care for his people. It's a big one, so let me give it again. Trust God in the sinful mess because God is faithful to complete his plan, and care for his people. So with that in mind, let's let's look at Genesis 38 together, and we'll walk through it scene by scene together. So if you're taking notes, scene number one is this. Sins, devastation. Verses one through 11, sins, devastation. Look with me at verse one. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Let me just pause there for a second. Because verses 1 through 5 kind of set the scene for the rest of chapter 38. Verse 1 says that Judah left his brothers, left his family, left the family of God at that time. So, Moses, writing this, is intending us to connect at that time back to the events of chapter 37. So 37 and 38 are intimately connected. So we're meant to remember at that time refers to the events in in chapter 37 when Judah and his brothers took Joseph, grabbed him, stripped him of his robe of many colors, threw him into a pit, and then sold him into slavery in Egypt, which, by the way, was Judah's idea. So why then does Judah leave his brothers? Why does he leave his family that God had promised to bless? Well, we've seen the dysfunctional family that Judah grew up in. It was a home that was filled with rivalry and envy and jealousy and bitter fights and stabbing each other in the back because of Jacob's polygamy. He had four wives And it was very clear to Judah, or it was very clear that Judah's dad, Jacob, didn't love Leah. And Leah, you'll remember, was Judah's mom. So Jacob, his dad's favoritism of Rachel and Joseph, those were his favorites, meant years of being overlooked. Years of feeling like a second class member of the family for Judah. And so it seems that Judah, at this point, is just tired of the humiliation of being overlooked, tired of the favoritism, tired of of, of being overlooked. And so he ditches his brothers and moves into Canaan, into Adullam, and he's looking, it seems, for a clean start, fresh start. Now Abraham and Isaac, his Grandfather and great grandfather had been clear all along that the family of God was not to marry outside of the family of God. They were not meant to they were they were commanded by God not to marry an unbeliever because God had promised to make Abraham's family into a great nation. The problem is is that Judah is not walking by faith at this point. Judah does what he wants ignores what he was commanded to do, and he goes ahead and marries an unbeliever. He marries a Canaanite woman. The language of verse two, Judah saw, Judah took, and Judah went into her, is the language of lust, not of love. it, It echoes the language of Genesis three, verse six, when Eve saw the fruit, took the fruit, and ate the fruit. It seems like Judah... He's tired of waiting, tired of being overlooked. And so rather than waiting, he puts his desire or his lust in the driver's seat. And in one sense, it's not hard to understand why Judah did this. I think there's moments in our lives when we can even relate with his decision. I mean, at the end of a day or a long week when nothing seems to go our way, everything is frustrating, are we not tempted to throw in the towel on what's right and just indulge a little bit? We kind of feel like we deserve that after a long, frustrating day. You know, just to find something. You know, everything goes wrong today. Everything went wrong this week. I'm frustrated, so we want to find something that feels good at the end of our frustrating day. But as we watch Judah drift away from the family of God, what we also see is that he starts to look more and more like the world, rather than like a child of God. Well, there's a shotgun wedding. Judah soon has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And a number of years pass by, enough enough years that they're of the marrying age. So we're thinking about 20 years here. And the boys grow up, and Ur, his firstborn, marries Tamar. So if we just kind of pause the story at the end of verse 6, You know, Judah may have sinned to get where he's at at this point, but it looks like things are promising. He's got three sons. His oldest son is is married. He's got his family of his own. Maybe he got the clean start that he was looking for. But, look at verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, "'Go into your brother's wife "'and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her "'and raise up offspring for your brother.' But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So we're told Tamar's first husband, Ur, was wicked. And the text does not tell us what specifically he did, but God put him to death. And there's no no kind of... uh, apology for what God did. There's just, there's just, God did it, Ur was wicked, and God was justified for taking his life. Well, after Ur's death, it's Onan's duty, it's his family responsibility to take Tamar now as his wife, and raise up offspring for his brother. It's what's known in the near, in the ancient world as, uh, as Leveret marriage. And Leveret is the if you look at the word leveret, lever is the Latin term for brother-in-law. So it's this idea where the brother-in-law marries the widow and it's his duty to then raise up offspring to carry on the family line. Now in our day, admittedly, this, this, this custom sounds very strange. But in the ancient Near East, it was very common. It was a common practice not only among the people of God, but also in other cultures of that day. And if we keep reading in uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, it's actually uh, codified in Deuteronomy 25, verses five through 10, where this leveret marriage is actually uh, a, a commanded of God's people to care for the widow. Because in that day, a, a widow who, lo- you know, a woman who lost her husband, she'd be vulnerable and she'd be exposed to poverty. So a leveret marriage was the honorable thing to do. It was a law that was meant to protect her. It allowed it allowed the deceased family line to continue, and it meant it provided protection for the widow and it made provision for her now that her husband had died. But notice in verse 9: Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Now, if you follow the custom of a leverate marriage, that's clear. That's the whole point of it. You're, you're raising up offspring for your deceased brother so that his family line would continue. So that's, that's right. But Onan doesn't like that. You see, the way things sit now, now that Ur, er, his brother, has died, Onan is in a situation where he will receive the inheritance. And he understands that if he provides offspring for Tamar, well, then the estate goes to that son, not to him. And he doesn't like that. So verse 9 says, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And and, and, and the fact that that Moses includes this word whenever shows us that this sexual encounter was not just a one-time incident. It's happening over and over and over. It's ongoing. And so the point that Moses is making about Onan is that Onan is selfish, selfish to the core he kept up the image the public image that he's the guy who's doing the honorable thing in this leveret marriage when in reality he's actually using Tamar for sex and refusing to take responsibility for her and he's unwilling to make any sacrifices for children that would come through that marriage it's not a far cry from what we see today Whether sex before marriage, whether it's pornography, self-gratification, or adultery, Onan reflects the world's attitudes towards sex today, reducing sex to something that's just a mere physical act without any commitment to marriage or an openness to children as God designs for our sexuality. Whatever the case, Onan has this responsibility. He's commanded Uh, by God to, to, to care for Tamar, but he abuses, he twists this duty and twists it to actually exploit Tamar rather than care for her. Well, what does God think about this? Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. It's a sobering reminder that God is not indifferent to sin. So Judah has lost his firstborn son, Ur, because of his wickedness. And now he's lost his second son, Onan, because of his wickedness. He's got one son left. What's Judah supposed to do? Well, the right thing to do, according to the law, would be to give her, Tamar, into marriage to Shelah so that he can then care for her and raise up offspring as the lever marriage is, is set up to do. But he knows that so far, anyone who marries Tamar dies. She's 0 for 2 in terms of people staying alive when she's married to them. As the reader, we understand why these sons died. It's not Tamar's fault, they died because of their wickedness. Verse 7 and verse 10 make that clear. It's, it's, it refers to wickedness in the sight of the Lord. God saw it, and God judged it. But, but, but Judah, Judah seems blind to what God sees. Judah seems blind to God's point of view. And what does Judah do? He blames Tamar. It's her fault. That's why they're dying. And so, yes, Judah promises Sheila to Tamar once he's old enough. But the text is very clear. He's lying. Judah has no intention of following through with his promise because he's afraid that that his last son would die if he marries Tamar and and then he'd have no sons. Through all of this, through Judah's sin, we watch Tamar, his daughter-in-law, suffer greatly. Instead of caring for Tamar, Judah sends her back to her father's home. Get out of my house, go back to your father's house. And he leaves her as a widow in her father's house with no provision, no protection, no future. And what's more, he leaves Tamar with the public shame of being damaged goods. You get married to Tamar, look what happens. Who's spreading that lie? Looks like Judah's spreading that lie. So she goes around with this public shame of of being cursed. That's the whispering that's going on about her in the community. Not exactly the clean start that Judah had hoped for when he first left his brothers. Not exactly the life that Tamar had dreamed about as a little girl. And I think what we're meant to see is how sin left this family in shambles. It's what sin does. I wonder if you can identify in any way with Judah. Perhaps you're responsible for the mess that you're in or the devastation that your sin has created for those around you. Or perhaps you can identify with Tamar this morning Perhaps you've, you've been wronged by someone. You're, you're, you're suffering injustice because of other people around you, and you feel trapped. You feel like there's no way out. Whether you can identify with Judah or you can identify with Tamar, it leaves us asking the question, is there any hope in the aftermath of sin? Scene number two. An unstoppable plan. This is verses 12 through 19, an unstoppable plan. Look with me at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judas saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, we've seen that the story of Abraham kind of begins in chapter 12 when God promises to make his family into a great nation. And then in Genesis 15, God promised to bless Abraham with offspring, as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. And so a lot of the tension that we see in chapter 38, revolves around this idea of offspring. In fact, if you go back up to verses eight and nine, offspring is repeated three times, offspring, offspring, offspring. And then he's referring to the offspring that, that God had promised Abraham's family. The problem is, is that even though God promised this family line offspring, two of Judah's sons are now dead, Judah will not give Tamar to Shelah for fear that he will die. And Tamar remains a childless widow who is unable to marry another man because she's still betrothed, because of this lie, to Shelah. So with Judah's wife now dead, there's no chance of raising up other sons in addition to Shelah. And so they're kind of stuck. They're boxed in. And since Tamar has no legal recourse to take what's rightfully hers, in you know, other words, marrying sheila that was her right, the only, the only thing she can do is just wait. But it looks in that moment of her waiting like God's promise of offspring, his plan to turn Abraham's family into a great nation to bless every family on the earth it feels like that plan is in jeopardy. Like the family line of Judah is going to come to an end, and God's promise is going to fail. God's plan might fail. But Tamar has a plan. When the time of mourning for his wife was dead, Judah, we're told, goes to visit his sheep shearers. And if you're a shepherd, when when it comes time to uh, shear the sheep, that was kind of like... Uh, a a big festival. Um, It was a time, it's kind of like a work party when you finish a big work project and all the employees come together. And these sheep shearing festivities were known to be, uh, there was a lot of heavy drinking of alcohol involved. In fact, Derek Kidner notes how the party that was involved with sheep shearing often attracted prostitutes who were looking to cash in on the party. So today, if you're looking for a corollary, it'd be like, just imagine students going to Miami for spring break. That's kind of like what this sheep shearing time uh, is like. What's interesting is that, is that she knows something about Judah's character by now, and she knows that if she dresses like a prostitute, that might trap him. So it says something about Judah's character. And so she dresses up like a prostitute, she sits at the, the gate of Inam, and she catches him. He sees her, he solicits her, her, and then after negotiating the terms, Tamar asks for a pledge. He he, he says he's going to pay her with a goat from his flock, but he doesn't have the goat with him. So she says, well, give me a pledge. Give me some sort of collateral to make sure that you're going to follow through with a payment that you are promising. He asks, well, what, what collateral should I give you? And she asks for the signet, the cord, and the staff. The signet would be like this little clay cylinder that he would wear around the cord on his neck. And it would have uh, the identification, it'd be like his ID, his identification. When he was doing a business deal, you'd you'd take that cylinder and he would kind of endorse the check, so to speak, with that, that signet that was around his neck. So we can kind of think of it as like military dog tags on his neck. Or we might think of it as she's essentially asking him, I want your driver's license and I want your credit card and I want your wallet. And being reckless like he is, he gives it to her. Verse 18. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she's pregnant. When the, when the deed is done, she goes home. We're told she puts her her prostitute clothing off and she puts back her widowhood clothing on. And she's accomplished what she set out to do. Now, one of the questions that might you might ask in reading a text like this is: okay, well. Was Tamar righteous in what she was doing? And the answer has to be in one sense, no. I mean, she's deceiving him and prostitution is immoral. But what's interesting is the text nowhere makes any moral judgment on Tamar. It just presents it as a fact, like this is what happened. And so the question of the morality of it is not a question that Moses wants to go down. He just states that this is what happened. Now remember, growing up, Judah, no doubt, was hurt growing up in a dysfunctional home where there was favoritism and envy. And so he, he kind of ventures off to start afresh. But, but what's interesting is that once he builds his own home, he's the one who dishes out the hurt. Tamar was used, she was unjustly unjust, mistreated. And it was Judah's sin and his mistreatment of her that backed her in a corner and left her with no options. So Jacob, sure, Jacob's home hurt Judah. Judah turns around and hurts Tamar. And when Tamar's trapped, she turns around and hurts him. There's a cycle. You see it? And this is not to blame Tamar, but I think it's just it's, it's just good to note that as as you and i care for somebody who's hurting we need to remember that we don't don't take it personally if they bite <laughs> because sometimes hurt people hurt people until that hurt is healed they might lash out it's not that's not something personal but it's just hurt people often hurt people because they're trapped and notice that sin notice that sin Whether it's Judah's sin or Tamar's actions, it doesn't derail God's plan. In his sovereignty, God ends up using what Tamar did to accomplish his plan. It looked like Judah's family line was in jeopardy, but even through this kind of really questionable choice and method that she uses, God uses it. It reminds me of Psalm 76, verse 10. Where the psalmist writes, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Even, even, even the, the man who's, who's, whose wrath is aimed at God, God puts it on like a tool belt. Because God's in control. He can use it for good. So it may have felt desperate. It may have felt like God's promise was going to fail, like his plan was going to fail. But in the end, Tamar's pregnant. And she is pregnant with the offspring that would carry on the family line of Judah and ultimately the family line of David and ultimately the family line of Jesus. Not to mention, let's not forget this, that she still has Judah's driver's license and credit cards. (laughs) Scene number three. The blind shall see. The blind shall see. This is verses 20 through 26. Look at me at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Let me pause there. Judah sees this what he thinks is a prostitute in secret goes back, and he's very eager to get his stuff back. So he sends his friend Hira, the Adulamite, with the goat. He wants to get his driver's license and his credit card and his wallet back. Now, at first glance, it may seem like Hira is doing Judah a favor. He's being a good friend. But let me just say this. A friend... Who supports you in your sin is not a good friend. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy is one who flatters you in your sin, but if you are in sin, your friend is somebody who will wound you. Not because they hate you, but to wake you up. Come on, man. So Hera is not painted as the best of friends here. Friends just just do a quick inventory of your friendships. Do the people that you hang out with, the people that you call friends, do they support you in your sin? Or do they pull you back from your sin? This is true for all of us, but, but young people, especially, like as you choose your friends, Proverbs is filled with, with, with commands to be wise about the friends that you choose because it's going gonna, it's gonna to chart the course of your life. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says that the companion of fools will suffer harm. If your friends are influencing you and supporting you in your sin, it's a bad friend. Ditch that friend and get some wise friends who will help you walk in a godly path. Well, when Hera cannot find the prostitute, he to get his belongings, Judah's belongings back, Judah's response in verse 23 is informative for us. He says, let her keep the things as her own. Why? Or else we shall be laughed at. What is his concern? What's driving him? What's keeping him up at night? What's he afraid of? Being laughed at. His concern is what people think of him. He doesn't want to be laughed at. I mean, at this point, I want to step into the story and grab him by the shoulders and say, wake up, man, you've got bigger problems than people laughing at you. There are bigger problems than being embarrassed. Make this right. But friends, that's what the fear of man does. The fear of man blinds us to the seriousness of our sin. He thought Tamar was to blame, not his sons. He was blind to who was actually at fault. The fear of man blinds us to the pain of others around us. Why? Because we're preoccupied with ourself. And so he is more concerned about being laughed at than he is concerned about Tamar suffering the disgrace of being a childless widow. The fear of man blinds us to the cliff that is That that sin is barreling towards that cliff which will lead us to destruction and ruin. And that's the point, friends. If Judah remains blinded by his self focus, if he stays blinded by his fear of man, he is about to drive off this cliff to his destruction. His eyes need to be opened. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And I want to just pause there. If you look at the ESV, there's a footnote. Immoral can also be translated as prostituted herself, right? Tamar, your daughter, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. She's pregnant by prostitution. And Judah said, oh, bring her out. Let her be burned. and he did not know her again. So word gets out, Tamar's pregnant. She's finishing up her first trimester. Maybe there's a little baby bump, not sure. But word gets out, and, 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 and when Judah finds out, whoo, he's furious. He, he, he just calls for the death penalty immediately. And again, this word for immoral is the same word for prostitution. She's Prostituted herself? Oh my goodness, who would do such a shameful thing? Bring in the gallows, let's burn her. Who could do such an immoral thing? This is going to bring shame on our family. I Man, the text is just dripping with irony, dripping with hypocrisy, dripping with his blind self righteousness. So as they gather the wood and start the fire for her execution, it's then that Tamar defends herself. And and this text is just, it's, it's tense. She waits until the last minute to defend herself in verse 25. As she was being brought out, fire's lit. She's going to be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law: "By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant." And she said, "Please identify whose these are—the signet cord and the cord and the staff." So, in this moment, when she, when she when she reveals what happened, she she is she's taking a huge risk. She is banking it all on this moment. So, at the end of verse 25, that is the that is the climax of the of the tension of this story. How is Judah going to respond? Would he deny it? Would she still be put to death? And if she's put to death, is the family line of Judah going to come to an end? Desperate to have people think well of him, Judah has been blaming Tamar for all the bad around him. He thought it was her fault. When Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, it was at the gate of Enam. And it's interesting, in in the Hebrew, ename means two eyes. I think Moses uses that intentionally because it's, again, ironic. Judah was blind, and he was deceived at ename, where there are two eyes. (laughs) Judah sinned in that moment, soliciting a prostitute and hoping that no one would see. But at ename, two eyes, God saw. He might be blind, Tamar may have tricked him, but God saw what he did. And God would ultimately use this encounter with Tamar to open his eyes to his own sin. We see that happen in verse 26, when his response is, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Notice, Judah does not say, Well, why did you dress that way? It's your fault. Why did you trick me? What were you doing on the first? No, he doesn't say any of that. He takes responsibility. I'm the one to blame here. She's not a prostitute. I'm the one who put her in this desperate situation. It's my fault. But Judah does more than say, my bad. Notice that the text shows us how Judah repents. At the end of verse 26, we're told, and he did not know her again. Friends, repentance is more than just acknowledging, yeah, I blew it, I screwed up. Repentance is doing a 180. It's a change of heart, it's a change of mind. It's turning away from our sin and with God's help, changing. That's repentance. Judah has been a scoundrel. Judah sold his brother Joseph into slavery. Judah subjected his aging father to a lifelong of sorrow. Judah loved the world. Starts looking like the Canaanites. Judah married an unbeliever. Judah mistreated Tamar. And he visited what he thought was a prostitute. It's not looking good for Judah. But verse 26 marks the beginning of a profound change in Judah. And as we keep reading in Genesis, years later, when Judah comes to Egypt with his brothers to visit Joseph, we'll see that he's a changed man. And it's, it's verse 26 that is the spark of this change that's happening in Judah. Friends, do you see God's care for Judah in this confrontation? He was blind. He was headed for the cliff of destruction. And God mercifully opened his eyes. His Canaanite friend, Hera, may have supported his sinful paths that led to death, but God and his kindness, God and his mercy, God and his love stopped him in his paths and said no more. God granted him repentance and revival begins with true repentance. Turning the lights on Judah's sin was God's kindness. But friends, when God turns the light on our sin, it doesn't feel like kindness, does it? When God exposes our sin, when God puts the spotlight on our sin, it feels like someone crept into your bedroom at 4 a.m. when you're dead asleep and then turns the bright lights on you. What do you want to do when you're dead asleep at 4 a.m. and somebody turns the lights on? What do you want to do? Ah! You want to hide back in the covers and go back in the darkness because it hurts your eyes. Left to ourselves, we love darkness rather than the light. Friends, like Judah, you and I will sin. We're going to sin. We're sinners. The question isn't if you and I will sin. The question is how will you and I respond when our sin is exposed? Perhaps that's where you're at today. Perhaps recently your sin has been exposed. You sense the conviction of God and His word. Perhaps as you're sitting here considering God's word in Genesis 38, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, and you feel the spotlight on your sin. It's uncomfortable. How can we find the courage in that conviction, to step into the light rather than to go back under the covers into the dark darkness? You know, when God put ur to death in verse seven, some people read that and they object that God was being unjust or God was being unfair. But the reality is, is that as our creator, God has every right to take the life that he gave us. And the point is not that ur, ur, was really bad and he deserved to die. And because we're alive today and our hearts are still beating and our lungs are still breathing. Well, we're not as bad as Er, and we're better than him. No, that's not the point. Scripture is very clear. Romans six, the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and we all deserve death. What scripture teaches is that, is that the fact that you and I are alive today It's not because we're good people. It's because of God's mercy. It's because of God's patience. God God spares, he gives us, he, he withholds his wrath to give us time to repent, to do a 180, and to run to him. Is it embarrassing to have God's spotlight put on our sin, especially if the public knows about it? Yeah, it's humiliating, it's embarrassing, it's painful. But friends, there are bigger problems than us being embarrassed. Hell, for example. Friends, Jesus came to save sinners like you and like me by going to the cross as the sinless son of God and dying on that cross not for his own sin, but for your sin and mine. To die in our place for our sin, to take the penalty of death, to to, to take and drink the cup of God's righteous wrath toward our sin so that we would not have to drink it. Better to lose the life that we're building on Earth with people thinking well of us. Better to lose that life that we're trying to build on Earth to gain eternal life. That's what Jesus taught. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life on this earth will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. My non-Christian friend, if you sense the conviction of your sin and God's spotlight on your sin my plea to you this morning is don't run back into the darkness. I understand it's uncomfortable. It's un- I'm, I'm a sinner with you. But his conviction is his mercy. So don't, don't run into the darkness. Run into the light. Turn from your sin. Repent and run to Christ. He tasted death so that we might live. Trust in him. well, we see, we see God's care for this scoundrel of Judah, but we still have this question, what about Tamar? Does God care for her? Which brings us to our last scene, scene number four, God's surprising choice. Verses 27 to 30, God's surprising choice. Look with me at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Kind of a strange ending to chapter 38 but there's a point to this. Tamar has two sons. Perez and Zerah. And at first, it looks like Zerah was going to be the firstborn. But Perez says, uh-uh. And he kind of pushes his way through and he breaches first. That's where he gets his name. Perez means breach. So what a strange ending. Why does chapter 38 end this way? We thought it was going to, ha- we thought it was going to end up this way and it, it was a twist. Why does it end this way? And why include chapter 38 at all? Right? I mean, if, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we were to chapter 37, look at the last verse of chapter 37. The last verse of chapter 37 says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, skip ahead to the first verse of, tr- of chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, the Egyptian. Here's the point. Chapter 39, verse 1, picks up exactly where chapter 37 ended. And so chapter 30, 38 is like this rude interruption to Joseph's story, right? I mean, we could, we could erase chapter 38, and it's like there's a seamless story for Joseph. So why is it here? Why does Moses interrupt Joseph's story with this uncomfortable, disturbing chapter of 38 that we might wish was not there? Well, the events of chapter 38 take over 20 years to accomplish, Three sons, they're grown up, married, two die, and then we're kind of waiting in, in, in Tamar's widowhood. It takes over 20 years to accomplish this. And I think the point is, is that as these events in chapter 38 are happening, they happen simultaneously with the events of Joseph's life. So next week, Lord willing, we're going to turn to chapter 39. So while Judah is... Caving to sexual immorality and visiting a prostitute, about the same time, what's Joseph doing? In chapter 39, he is fleeing from sexual immorality and he is a man of character and integrity. And then we keep reading, the rest of Genesis is is with the focus on Joseph. And Joseph is depicted as this man of integrity and character. And, and, and he, he eventually rises up to be the second command of all of Egypt. And so by the time we come to the very end of Genesis, chapter 49, I mean, Joseph just seems like the very obvious choice. Surely God's promised seed was going to pass from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, and then Joseph. It's clear to all of us, right? But when we get to chapter 49, it doesn't go to Joseph. It goes to Judah. Judah the scoundrel, and Tamar. In fact, by the time we get to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, and we come to the genealogy of Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Christ, Tamar is in Jesus' genealogy. Right there, for everyone to see. Now listen, maybe you've done Ancestry.com and Kind of look at you know. Sometimes when you kind of dig in your family tree, you, sometimes you find people like, ah, "I wish I didn't know that about my family." It's embarrassing. It's it's shameful. I wish it wasn't there. Chapter thirty-eight is like that. It's difficult enough for us to read. It's difficult for me to preach through. So why does God include this in the family line? Why does He include Tamar in the family line of Jesus, the Savior? I mean, God's writing the book. He's writing the story. So why put Tamar in the place for everyone to see? I mean, isn't this something that you'd rather just skip over or hide in the fine print of the Bible? Why does he make it front and center for us to see like this? Unless that's the point, right? The world may forget The Tamars of this world who have been misused, mistreated, suffered injustice, and forgotten. The world might forget the Tamars of this world. But I think the point of this is that God does not forget the Tamars of this world. God cares for the Tamars of this world. Yeah, he's working his sovereign plan and his sovereign plan, which will bring him glory and make Abraham's family into a great nation is an unstoppable plan. But while he's carrying out this unstoppable plan, he has time to care intimately, personally, lovingly for the Tamars of this world. Praise God. He lifts them out of the pit. List them out of the shame and brokenness and sorrow that the sin against them has committed and, and put them in. And he gives them a place of honor. Matthew 1, genealogy of Jesus. It's not merited, it's not deserved. It's God's grace. As he raised Christ from the dead, he raises us from the dead as he changes Judah, God's spirit can change us as well. I'm gonna ask uh, our bands, our musicians to come up at this point. And I want us to take some moment, as we close this morning, I want us to take a moment just to not just end as we normally do, I want us to take a moment just to reflect. I, I think we can sometimes rush off to the next thing, but I want us to pause and take a moment of some reflection and prayer together. Being in Thailand the last couple of weeks, one of the things that we saw was temple after temple with person after person physically bowing down to statues of a Buddha. And these people were sincere. They were pouring out their hearts to these idols. But they were deceived and they were blind to the fact that that Buddha they were praying to could not hear them. And in and, and watching this idolatry reminded me that it's not just in Thailand that this happens. We can have religion that looks real on the outside, but is dead on the inside. And like Judah looked respectable in the eyes of men, but was dead inside and far from God. That can be true of us too. Judah not only moved to Canaan, Canaan crept into his heart. And we're at risk of the same thing. We live in, we live in this world, but sometimes the world can creep into our own hearts. And friends, if if our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, if our lives are not different from the world that we live in, we're not of much use to this world. We're called to be holy as he is holy. And I think one one of the rebukes of this text and one of the encouragements of this text is that Judah changes. We see the beginning of his change. But his change starts with repentance. Not fleeing to the dark, but taking responsibility for his sin. Revival begins with repentance. Hope in the aftermath of sin is the hope that we find when we step into the light and come to God in repentance. So what I want us to do is I want us to take some time as a church family just to pray. I'm going to have the band just lead us in music as we pray. You can remain in your seats. Um, you can sit where you're at, you can kneel where you're at, but we're gonna, we're gonna take some time just to pray. I want you to ask the Lord to search your hearts. And if, you, if, if God is convicting you of some sin that you know that you need to deal with, deal with it this morning. Don't rush off on the next time. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna take some time as a family just to, to pray and to confess our sins to God and to turn from our sins. Use this time as an opportunity not to blame others for your sin, but to own it and to ask God to help you turn from it and to change. So uh, where you're sitting, let me encourage you to join us in prayer and then after a little while I'm gonna close us in prayer uh, and then we'll, we'll close in song together. But where you're sitting, uh, let's go to the Lord together.